Genesis chapter 1 opened with, in the beginning. Here in Mark, we have a new beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are a few words here in this verse first that we see very often in a religious context, but rarely stop to understand what they would have meant to your ancient listener in Israel or Greece. Gospel simply means good news. It could be any sort of good news, like the birth of a child, but it often had a political context to it. For example, when the Roman emperor was born, it was called gospel, good news. But now we have a new kink coming onto the scene, Jesus the Christ. And Christ isn't his last name, it's a title. It means literally an anointed one. In Hebrew, we would pronounce it Messiah. And this also had political and kingly overtones to it. In ancient Israel, when kings were coronated, they were anointed, christened with oil. God promised that his coming servant, who would save his people, he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit and be the perfect king, much like David. But the good news of Jesus is much more than a king coming to rule over Israel. Mark and every other gospel writer connect the coming of Jesus to Isaiah chapter 40, which talks about the return of God himself. Yesterday's reading in Ezra chapter 6 left us with the question, where is God? Well, Mark tells us he's right here in the person of Jesus. But before Jesus makes his appearance, we're first introduced to John the Baptist, called so because he's out there baptizing. He's out near the Jordan River where he's baptizing as they confess their sins. And this was a highly symbolic act that reminded people of a lot of different episodes in Israel's history. It reminded them of when Israel crossed through the Red Sea in Exodus and found liberation from their oppressors. It reminded them of when Joshua and Israel crossed through the Jordan to conquer the Promised Land. It reminded them of the ritual washings he had to undergo before approaching God in his temple. And so all of these together convinced people that John was the start of a new movement that God was starting, in which their current oppressors, Rome, would be overthrown, just as they had read about in Daniel's chapter 2 and 7. And John preached of someone mightier than even him, a mighty one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have near enough time to discuss all that the coming of the Holy Spirit means, but in short, it meant new life for the nation of Israel and the sure sign of God's presence with his people. And then we finally meet him, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a common carpenter with a common name from a town that nobody even wrote about until after Jesus' death. But he comes announcing the kingdom of God and that it's near. So you better get ready. Repent and believe in the good news. Change your way of thinking and living and give your allegiance to Jesus. If you want God to rule over your life, Jesus is the one to show you where to find him. Now the next few stories in chapter 1 give us instruction on the kind of response that Jesus wants, as well as Jesus' power and purpose. In verses 16 through 20, we see him call four disciples who immediately leave their old life of fishing behind them in order to become followers of Jesus and bring others to him as well. In verses 21 through 28, we have a demonstration of Jesus' authority as he proves the power of his word by commanding an unclean spirit to leave. In verses 29 through 34, we have too many stories to tell of Jesus healing all these different people. And in verses 39 through 45, we have a picture of Jesus' compassion a willingness to reach out and touch a leper, an outcast of Israel thought to be cursed by God. So Jesus, he's right out the gate in the first chapter, and things are just going great. Jesus is willing to heal people. 
people are willing to come to him to be healed. And he starts to collect a small group of followers. And with all of Jesus' miracles, you'd think that he's bound to be popular. But there's something we should notice in verses 35 through 38. After a long night of performing miracles and healings, Jesus goes incognito for a bit so he can get some time away from the crowd to pray. But Simon and his other disciples were told are seeking him out and they find him and let him know that everyone is trying to hunt him down. But Jesus says in verse 38, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. The miracles are nice. They help prove who Jesus is, and they give us a glimpse of his power to heal not just our body, but also our soul. But Jesus is concerned that people aren't after his message, just his power. Jesus, he wants to leave behind the crowd seeking him and go out to preach his message to a new audience. That is why he's come. And this is one of the big messages of Mark. Notice again back in verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're told up front that Jesus is the Son of God. But despite all the miracles, healings, and shows of power, not a single person in the Gospel of Mark calls him the Son of God. That is, until Mark chapter 15, verse 39, when after dying on the cross, the centurion who was standing opposite saw the way that he breathed his last. And he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Only after seeing Jesus dead, dead on the cross, is Jesus recognized as the Son of God. The miracles show the power of God, but nothing shows the power of his love like the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. As we read through the gospel, we're going to naturally be wowed and amazed by all the different things that Jesus does. But none of those signs lead anybody to confess Jesus as the Son of God. None of these signs show just how much God truly loves his people. So how do we know Jesus is the Son of God? Because only God could love us enough to send his Son, his only Son whom he loved, to die on the cross for our sins.